Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. A movement, I'm telling you, they're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. First, I want to apologize for the audio issues on Monday. If you haven't listened to Monday's show, I invited a couple of friends on to talk about, we'll just say, the events of January 6th. The day before we recorded, I got a new mixer with channel processing built in, and I had to rush to get everything set up in time. I didn't notice that, although we were hearing the processors in our headphones, the EQ, the gating, all of that stuff, what went into the computer was just the naked signal from the preamp. It was a pretty simple settings issue, but it made a big difference in the final result. Then one of my microphones went on the fritz, which is why Michael sounded like he was broadcasting through time from the 1930s for his first couple of comments. I actually ended up having to swap out his mic. It was quite the party. So I think I'll have it pretty well squared away by the time we come around again. There were a couple of topics we discussed that I want to take a closer look at. The first is Mike Pence and his refusal to overturn the election. There have been arguments all over the place on this one, and most of the conservative pundits argue that because the contested states broke their own election laws in clear violation of the Constitution, constitutionally, their electors should have been rejected. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 begins... Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. The Constitution puts the manner of voting for president, for their state, solely and squarely in the hands of the state legislatures. The argument is that, because the executive branches in the contested states broke their own election laws, and then certified the fraud that they perpetrated, those electors are invalid. While I don't disagree with that, the power to overturn a state's electors should never rest in the hands of a single person. Had Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, rejected the contested electors, he would have set a precedent and opened the door for future VPs to overturn future state electors based on fabricated pretense. Imagine a sweeping Republican victory in 2024, or 2028, but legacy media and big tech have spent the election cycle perpetrating a massive propaganda campaign against a selected number of red states. Imagine they treat those targeted conservative states the way they've treated President Trump for the past four years, with hoaxes and smear campaigns. Then the VP, whoever becomes Kamala Harris's VP, claims impropriety in those states based on the public sentiment raised by that propaganda campaign, and rejects those electors. Who or what would stop them? Who or what would be empowered to get in their way? This is not a power we want in the hands of one person. I'll admit, I was disappointed when the objectors, particularly Senator Cruz, did not call for the rejection of the contested electors outright. I wanted to see this thing voted out and done with. That was my emotional reaction. I wanted the fraudulent votes rejected, and all he called for was 10 days to investigate and allow the state legislators to sort it out. Then I applied some reason to the situation. In our system of checks and balances, we cannot have the federal legislature overturning what the Constitution puts squarely in the hands of the state legislatures. Senator Cruz understands the Constitution. He understands that an outright rejection of those electors would have been unconstitutional. He also knows that the only election dates respecting the office of president found in the Constitution are Election Day and Inauguration Day. It was perfectly legitimate to delay the Electoral College count 
until the state legislatures in question had an opportunity to handle their business. It's just not a power that should be held by one person. On Monday, Charlie Kirk made an argument for Pence delaying the vote that I actually thought had some real merit. He suggested that Pence should have delayed the vote if for no other reason than to force the Supreme Court to rule on the matter. As is, we could theoretically run into the same problem next time. And next time, we may have a less honorable VP. But, had he gone through with it, we could have a definitive answer going forward. It's a compelling argument. As an exercise of power, I completely disagree with the VP delaying the vote count. But, as an opportunity to force a resolution on the issue, that idea has some merit. Breitbart reported on a request from 88 state legislators from five contested states to Vice President Pence, requesting he delay the vote count for 10 days so they could sort out the problems in their states. The request read, in part, On January 6, 2021, you were statutorily authorized and required under the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to preside over both houses of Congress to count and record the presidential electoral vote count to elect the President and Vice President of the United States. This congressionally set deadline, however, is not the supreme law of the land, and in fact must not supersede our state legislative authority under the Constitution. Moreover, the deadline is not necessitated by circumstances, especially when it truncates the fulfillment of our constitutional duties and our responsibility to the American people. Therefore, we write to ask you to comply with our reasonable request to afford our nation more time to properly review the 2020 election by postponing the January 6th opening and counting of the electoral votes for at least 10 days, affording our respective bodies to meet, investigate, and as a body, vote on certification or decertification of the election. This action can be completed prior to the inauguration date, as required by the Constitution. Notice the language that began with. Pence was statutorily authorized and required to count the electoral votes on January 6th. It appears Pence would have broken federal law had he unilaterally postponed the count. Now, while the VP couldn't postpone the count, that doesn't mean legislation couldn't be enacted to the same effect. The objections created the opportunity to debate a postponement, and, had those objections succeeded, Congress could have passed a bill to postpone, expedited it to the White House, where Trump would have signed it that very moment, and the date set by the Electoral Count Act of 1887 could have been temporarily, and more importantly illegally, bypassed. Then the states get their 10 days. Now, this is all my opinion, of course, and nothing more than a mental exercise because the Democrats control the House, so the votes just weren't there. But if the count was to be delayed, to my understanding, that's how it would have had to happen. So that brings us back to reality. Where do we go from here? What can we do now? Truth is, short of what Charlie Kirk calls a God-sized miracle, we're stuck with President Biden. And then at some point, President Harris. I think at this point, that's a done deal. It's not right, but the train has moved on. Now, I think every state legislature, in every state in the union, needs to make it their first priority to recall any and all delegation of authority they've given respecting any facet of the election process in their state. The state legislatures need to take back ownership of the entire process. In these contested states, the executive branches unilaterally chose, in violation of their state election laws, to send unsolicited vote-by-mail ballots to set up unattended ballot drop boxes, to alter the way signatures were verified, or if they were verified at all. Then, in each of those states, the executive branch certified the results of their own criminal misconduct and sent the fraudulent results to be counted in D.C. If the state legislatures take back that power that is rightfully and constitutionally theirs, then they can prevent this going forward. There also needs to be consequences for judges who break the law. 
In Pennsylvania, for example, the state Supreme Court ruled to extend the mail-in ballot deadline and to allow drop boxes for ballot collection, both in opposition to state law. The branch intended to adjudicate existing law, instead legislated of their own accord. When one branch of government assumes the powers of another, of their own volition, what else can you call it but usurpation? The checks and balances written into our system of government were intended to limit the power wielded by any one person or group. We tend to look at the men and women in black robes with a heightened sense of respect, but they're people in politics just the same as the rest, subject to the same enticements to power and the same desire to ensure they get their way. The Constitution states that the stipulation on a justice's continued service in the Supreme Court is good behavior. The same standard should be applied to lower courts as well. Judges who exceed their authority, who demonstrate partiality, and particularly when they adjudicate in defiance of law, should be considered to have violated the stipulation of good behavior and should be removed through due process. So, how do we plug the leaks moving forward? Step 1. The legislatures in every state need to rescind delegation of the authority to certify results. Vote certification should be handled exclusively by each state's legislative body. Objection to certification should be permitted only on the grounds of genuine impropriety and presided over exclusively by the state legislature. Problems should be investigated and a determination should be made on how they should be handled, preferably based on rules set down in advance. Once the state legislature is satisfied that any impropriety or irregularities have been resolved, it can certify the vote and send it to Congress, adhering to the deadline that conforms with the Constitution's timetable. It's easy to get caught up in the urgent peril of a moment, but when things happen, especially of this caliber, we have to consider the long-term consequences of what might seem the most efficient or expeditious solution. The Democrat Party, the left, permits no dissent, no differing views. Their idea of diversity is people of varying colors and backgrounds thinking what they tell them to think. There is a set narrative to accomplish set goals, and straying from that path carries a sentence of depersoning. In a few days, we will witness the merger of the social left, the technological left, and the political left with the state. They will control two branches of the federal government with few, if any, obstacles to taking the third if they so choose. Our best hope is found in state governments. The founders were a lot smarter than I think most give them credit for. They layered checks on power. When one layer failed, there would be another right behind it. From all indications, the last remnants of the checks and balances at the federal level are about to fall. The next retreat is the states. If the Texas v. Pennsylvania case was any indication, about half the states are a lost cause. But, by the same indicators, about half the states are ready and willing to stand strong. We need to strengthen those states, fortify them, metaphorically speaking. We need to create places of refuge, so that when the federal government comes knocking with unconstitutional attacks on our liberties, our states will draw a hard line at their borders and say, not here. Those free states, then, need to band together. Not in secession, but in mutual support. If Biden, Harris, Pelosi, and Schumer want to come for our money, our rights, our guns, for our businesses, our churches, or our children's schools, they won't meet one defiant state. They'll meet 20, 25, or 30. It needs to be like knocking at a home, looking to fight the husband, and discovering that the door is answered by the whole angry neighborhood. Right now, our motto should be peaceful, but resolute. Alright, I'm going to leave it there. As always, you can find me on Twitter and Parler at RealIntoTheFray. We'll see how long it takes them to notice me and then ban me from Twitter. Till next week, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. (laughs) 